0: So my name is Kevin. I uh, have an have a over eighteen years of law enforcement experience with some uh, military experience on top of that. I recently left the law enforcement profession um, and went full time into a what they call a school protection officer in uh, Southwest Missouri. And that position is armed, plain clothes, uh, non commissioned officer position, but the purpose, the sole purpose, of the position is to work hand in hand with law enforcement to be um active shooter response active shooter intervention uh prevention and that includes um doing crisis intervention uh mental health uh, intervention and threat assessment investigations
1: okay now and you perfectly set me up to talk about all the stuff you're doing now and now i want to go like that thing like that old tv show where they're like where we were or the history of your story of your life <laughs> sure all sure. the way back okay so before you were a cop were you, was the military the first move out of high school? Would you tell me like how you got into the military and how that worked into law enforcement?
0: Yeah. So I, uh, long story short, if I can. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> um, always wanted to be in the military. Always wanted to be in the army. Um, and the army. So it, as a, specifically yeah, the army. Yeah. Okay. Specifically the army. I wanted to be in the army. And you know what? I looked at other services too. My dad was a draftee to Vietnam. And of course, you know, so that was that was something that I was drawn to, you know, the Vietnam war era, um, prior to nine 11. I mean, everything was really, yeah, we had the Gulf war, we had some stuff in Bosnia, we had, you know, the Panama, but there was nothing like major. Um, so, you know, I, you know, Vietnam was still there a lot of Vietnam vets at the time when I joined the military. In fact, my first sergeant major was a Vietnam vet. My last first sergeant in the army reserves was a Vietnam vet. Um, so there was it was still highly influenced in the U.S. Army at the time, and uh, you know, so there was you know the ups and downs to that, and the the people that were very nervous about that cons, you know, what occurred during the Vietnam War and continuing, um, and then we had a lengthier war after that. Uh, but and, nevertheless, I wanted to be in the army. Uh, my whole like as a kid, my dad was not necessarily pro me joining the army, but he also you know were very. We were very family like we weren't necessarily I don't think we were overly patriotic, but we were very much like, hey, this is sometimes things that we have to do in life. Um and then so I joined the army at eighteen right out of high school.
1: So that um, I wanna ask about your dad. So your dad you as you said, he was a draftee. Uh yeah. he did not was how did he ever talk to you about exactly what his feelings at the end of the day, after the whole thing was over, because my dad talked to me about that too. My dad did not want to get drafted, volunteered to try to avoid Sure. He wanted to get into language school and they said he couldn't, and they kicked him out into the CBs or whatever. But anyway, went through a lot of stuff. Did your dad have a strong opinion about the army and the armed forces and Vietnam in particular that he imparted upon you or is he more? Yeah.
0: So he, um, when I was younger, he didn't really talk about it a whole lot. Yeah. You know, he was, he was an alcoholic at, you know, a a sober alcoholic. My dad too. (laughs) Um, it's weird, you know. These Vietnam vets have, you know, these drug addictions. It's it's almost like that they were forced into this in a lot of ways. Yeah Our country just doesn't learn some lessons sometimes. Um, you know, how do we, you know, they I hate to use the term, and this is a term I don't really use, but they're you know trying to self-medicate these, you know, these issues, right? Right. And uh, and I don't really like to use self-medicate. And I think you heard me say this before because it implies that we're doing something good for ourselves by the words. Yeah, it sounds good like you're taking really, a supplement, right. like whiskey so, every yeah, night so. is a supplement. It's like you know wheatgrass, in, in, yeah. the, in the negotiations field, and the you know the crisis intervention field, we would not use uh, the that that term self-medicate too often. But yeah, he was not pro. You know, he was like, I wish you join the air force, I wish you join the navy. You know, he walked up and down a lot of a lot of hills, and you know, uh, he was along the DMZ. Um, he took part in some operations. I don't even think he really knew what they were until. I started researching it later in life, and you hear some of these, these stories about some of the special forces guys that were being escorted. The years they were escorted, where they were located, who escorted them. My dad was specifically on one of these reconnaissance teams with the 101st Airborne escorting special Forces. described exactly what was happening, but didn't know what these operations were. He didn't want to be there. He was drafted and, you know, couldn't care less. And when he got home,
1: his favorite thing to (laughs) do in the decades after was, was, I don't want to go research where I was and what I did.
0: So, you know, I I listened to uh, another podcast, famous Navy SEAL that I won't mention on your podcast, but uh, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. He... Uh, has these special forces guys from Vietnam on there, and de- these guys are describing exactly what my dad was—the years and places. I'm like, I don't think my dad knew exactly what he was doing, but they were—he es- was escorting special operations groups into Laos. He talked about—he's like, yeah, we were right on the Laos border. We would go across the—you know—this river. We'd escort these special forces guys. We'd go inland, you know, with them, you know, maybe up to a kilometer, and then we'd come back, and they would be off into Laos doing whatever they were doing. And I'm like you were escorting special operations group guys, the saw the Mac V SOG guys. And you don't even know, you know, you know what the, he's like, yeah, we had to turn in our dog tags. We couldn't have name tapes on our uniforms. I'm like, you were doing some very like, you know, to, you know, crazy things that were technically probably illegal for the country to be doing Right? that, you know, that you didn't know. You he know, was just taken, but they the were, other. those are the orders. Yeah. He's yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah, he didn't really want me to be, uh, in the army. I, you know, he didn't discourage me from it. He knew that I wanted to serve my country. He knew that I, you know, and you know, I, I love my country very much. It does not mean that I love my government. Um, but I love my country and, uh, I love this land and, uh, with our ups and downs and our history, uh, I think we should always be trying to make it better and that was kind of my thought. Um, you know, who if it you know, there's no draft going on obviously right. and so in my the reason you know I was felt very strongly about if I don't do it who does it? You know, who's going to be the next generation to take the call? Um, and the you know plus it seemed exciting it wasn't your everyday job um, so I joined I uh, went to infantry school and did you do it straight and out the, graduated high school went in I actually joined before I was out of high school my dad signed the paperwork for when I was seventeen okay um, yeah so uh, he obviously knew he was going to talk me out of it and you know of course there's some great benefits to being in military service too you know um, you know I, my college is paid for. You know, I, you know, my resume was started getting out, um, you know, a lot of great things that came about um, with my experience. And to this day, I mean, uh, you know, where I work in my specific school that I work there, there during Veterans Day, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, my my district probably leans a little more towards my views than other districts do. And the principal at my school. During, you know, for a Veterans Day celebration had me and one other veteran kind of talk in front of the, you know, all of the students and his, you know, it's a very patriotic community and wanted to, you know, talk about, hey, the, the sacrifices people make um, for our country. And so, uh, I mean, you're not going to get that in every school. You certainly wouldn't get that in my, my my kids' previous schools for sure in Colorado. So, you know, it was it's a very supportive of military. So you get to talk about, you know, uh, you're always connected with every veteran, you know uh, from, from here on out for the rest of your life. I, I still talk to two army buddies to this day. we were in the army together and we, you know, you know, things that sucked at the time are just funny to talk about now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I, I was telling a story the other day and, um, We talked about, you know, and I'm, of course now I work in a school, right? When you work in military and law enforcement, you know, you can tell these jokes about life and death and it's funny. Like, ha, 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 this time I almost died. (laughs) Uh, This time, this time I saw something die, you know, like, you know, you're, you're, you know, that's, that's how, that's again, how people cope, especially in those fields. But, you know, uh, I was telling the story about how I had a parachute failure and, uh, and, uh. I eventually fixed the failure, but I landed so hard and, you know, caused, uh, got seriously injured. And I'm like laughing about this. Everybody's kind of staring at me and I'm like looking in the crowd. I'm like, I didn't know my audience very well now that I work (laughs) in this school and and I'm thinking to myself, uh, I'm like, you guys just don't think this is funny, but this is looking back now. It's funny, you know, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, I almost lost my helmet in the process. And instead of fixing my helmet, instead of fixing my parachute first, I fixed my helmet first. Why? (laughs) Because the army instructors told me if you lose that helmet, you owe the army. Me five hundred dollars. I was a brand new private. Do you think I had five hundred dollars? No, I'm fixing that helmet first. Uh, I'd rather die than lose the helmet. Look so the, way
1: the training to... had panicked you. Whatever the co- the version of the quartermaster for the army, the whole idea had panicked you. Like this is the thing that costs the money.
0: Yeah, so I fix the helmet and then I fixed I'm like, okay, well I got to fix the parachute. Or I'm not going to I'm not going to survive. So I'm fixing the parachute and I get it I get it fixed enough to where it slows me down enough to where I definitely survive, obviously, cuz I'm here, but uh, you know, it was a, a tragic, you know, imprint into the ground, you know, that I get there and I'm just laying there moaning, "Oh my god." Uh, and this instructor is on this is my third jump in fact, and this instructor is on the area drop zone with this megaphone. Get up, get up, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm dying.
1: <laughs> you know. So, he did not realize the extent of your injuries at that time and he was blaring at you on the thing.
0: You know, he uh even if he did, it's the military. They're like, Yeah, we don't care, just get up, like, you know, go be injured somewhere else. <laughs> you know, don't be injured on my watch. Uh, you know, so you know, I spent four years on active duty, then I went to the National Guard component and would spent three more years there. Um so nothing crazy in my military time. I have no combat deployments. Um, I joined prior to nine eleven. So actually, my infantry school tactics were jungle warfare tactics. Okay. Uh, my first year, my first two years in the military were uh, jungle warfare training, and because that's what we learned in Vietnam, right. and that's what we did for thirty years post Vietnam. And then nine eleven happens, and uh, you know, and all of a sudden it's the desert. Yeah, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is really, really kind of unprepared for this type of thing, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, that's the. I don't, I don't learn desert warfare. Then, you know, the unit that I was in was in the station in Washington, D.C., and we were doing infantry support for uh, D.C. operations as well as Honor Guard. And um, got to learn, learn a lot of cool stuff there. I had a very unique military experience, but I learned a lot of really cool stuff. The uniqueness of it was being where I was, but also the connections that were made with, you know, uh, we would get trained by special forces guys and Navy SEALs, and these guys would come in and tip, give us, you know, uh, you know, you know, hands-on training to stuff, the stuff that we'd never done before. And you're know, like, wow, this is this is crazy. This is so interesting. You know, uh, I can't believe that you know the, I'm face to face with this guy that you know these crazy Navy SEALs, these crazy Special Forces guys that are teaching us this really cool stuff, right. you know? And, the, you know, of course, it's a different mindset in those those units than I, to the unit that I was in. They're like handing us grenades, like, hey, here's a box of grenades that you guys can play with. And we're like, yes, oh my God. And the first started, it's like, no, don't, go put that down. No, you can't touch those, you know? You know uh, and, uh, you know, I get out and I joined a uh, National Guard unit, which was a Special Forces support company. So we did communication support for uh, one of the special forces groups, and again, the, I was just in awe of the guys that were the special forces operators. They were just really cool, um, really, really quick to want to teach you something. Never, they were just. I mean, I'm sure there's egotistical guys out there, but they were never egotistical. They were. They wanted to teach you stuff. Um, they wanted you to learn. They. Uh, so I. I mean, I learned. You know you know guys that were just just excellent in their fields were passing their knowledge on to you so You're there like, was just wow. no gate yeah there was no
1: gatekeeping about anything they knew like
0: in conventional army there was some gatekeeping and i'll give you an example when yeah. uh, when we went to expert infantryman's badge testing and it's a, a lot of tests to get your expert badge in this you can only fail a couple of times and you have to actually pass those courses but if you if you fail too many times like more than like two times or th- I think it is uh, then you you can you fail the entire course right okay. and the first time i went through actually i failed my last my last of my task and it takes a couple of weeks to go through this whole thing and uh, so yeah, I I passed the second time through, which was a couple years later, and uh, but you know you'd have guys the cadre that, that were gatekeepers and they would just I mean they were just the strictest of the strict on everything. They didn't want you to pass you know at all, and then you get these other units. They want to pass their knowledge on to you, you know. So uh, a, a different mindset completely. And I think you know I just have a ton of respect for that kind of mentality that they want to pass it on. So yeah, then I get out of the army. Um, and when I got off active duty as a national guard, I was also, I joined, I started going to college. Okay. And then I also joined a police department, Getting going to be, I was a dispatcher for a little while and not long after I was a dispatcher, they had offered to send me to the police Academy. So I wasn't a dispatcher very long and they sent me to the police Academy. Uh, this is a time in America that, uh, we, a lot of, you know, some departments were having a struggle in hiring because of the cost to go to police academies, not necessarily because of what the culture is now. Um, so there was, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity for me to get hired with my, the department I was dispatching for and they offered to send me, uh, I, I, well, you know, back and forth requested, but you know, ultimately they gave me an offer to send me to the Academy and I did. And then, uh, I ended up, you know, that year, um, that I was a dispatcher and I was also going to school full time. I ended up doing like 40 credit hours, or 39 credit hours in college that entire year whilst working full time as a dispatcher. I was on nights and I was the national guard. I was a little on edge by that. And I was like, you know what, we got to do something different. So I, you know, finished my associate's degree and, uh, became a police officer and then to get my bachelors, uh, while, you know, again, working nights. I would, as a cop, I would, you know, work all night long. I'd go home, take a nap, go to school, Go to school, come back from school, try to take a nap, and go work the night next night. And, I'll tell you, they uh, did the that same thing.
1: Like, I was doing element elementary, oh, elementary yeah. school teaching, but as soon as you get your degree and you go out and start teaching elementary school, well, how do you make more money? Oh, you have to go back to school immediately. You, you have go to go, to go get your master's. You got to get. You got to keep right. getting education. Yeah.
0: So yeah, you know, and of course, you know, the under, undergrad was never anything. You know, I felt, felt like it was just a stepping stone. I never, I never really wanted my college degree. It was just something I felt like you had to have. And I was never interested in, like, any class. Now, my master's program, I'm, like, interested in every class. I have, like, straight A's. Um, it's all stuff that I want to do. It's all stuff that I've experienced. Um, so I'm writing these papers. I've got, you know, some of these instructors are, you know, retired What was it? Was it law,
1: agents. criminal justice? What was the master's in?
0: So my master's is, uh, is strategic security and homeland security. Oh, okay. um, So it, a lot of, like... A lot of uh, stuff on like executive protection, a lot of like planning, a lot of threat assessment, a lot of protective intelligence stuff that I've experienced and done. Um, and so, one of these, and, and some of it, I haven't done. One, for instance, I, I mean, I've been to some EP schools and like executive protection like training, but I've never been on an, on a team. I I just went to training for a couple, you know, a, a very minor a couple you, week training.
1: Were you interested because it was just interesting, or you're like, I want to be a bodyguard, I want to be executive protection.
0: No, I, I, mean, I did because it, it was interesting okay. It was interesting. I didn't necessarily want to be an, an EP guy because by this time, I you know, and this is just a couple of years ago. I'm like, you know, I'm getting old and fat, and I, the last thing I'm trying to do is try to be an EP guy. But it seemed like it was something I wanted to know about, um, and a lot of the other classes that went along with it were things that I was interested in um, and knowledge for just a knowledge base. And so I did write this whole workup up of a security assessment, and it's like 40 pages for this one class. And this professor that I have is is uh, you know former. I think he was former secret service or former defense, you know, something, something where he was doing this job on a daily basis for the federal side of the house. Yeah. And he's like, well, you gave me an A. He's like, you obviously have tons of experience in this. I was like, actually I don't. I, uh, just took my knowledge of what I know as a police officer and some of these, some of these, and applied the knowledge, some of these aspects to this realm, and just, you know, tactically thought like, well, this is a good idea. Or this is a bad idea when I'm writing this, you know, writing this assessment out. Right. And so he was like, well, it looks like he knew what you're talking about. So I, I had a lot more fun with that. And then, uh, yeah. So I spent, uh, I spent nine years working for my first police department. And then I spent almost seven at my second police department, both Metro agency departments. And then. Can, I'm can I, I'm going to jump ahead about, a little bit. Can I, the, yeah. so the
1: military, <clears throat> military and law enforcement and, and private security, um, stuff all kind of dovetail together. It's a lot of the, kind of the it same thing. It kind of group. does. How,
0: how I go to law enforcement is, um, I had a friend who he's like, you need to be like looking at these cop jobs and I was getting out of the off vac duty. Like, yeah, no, I don't want to be a cop. I just don't want to be a cop. He's like, yeah, it's in your blood. You got to go. Were you thinking cop. white like, collar? I, what were you thinking you wanted to do after you got out? You know I, I don't really know. Okay. Uh, like looking back, I'm not sure. And I, you know, uh, I was thinking white collar a little bit and, uh, and I, I even looked at like being a teacher for a little bit, for sure. Um, wasn't really sure. I, I saw myself wearing a suit in a bank, I guess, type of <laughs> attitude, you know. And now I'm looking back, I'm like, gosh, what I was that I about myself. Yeah, there's no way that would have been possible. And so, um, yeah. So what happens is a. Uh, uh, this friend of mine, he had a, he was a cop, and he, he was a. We called him we called him 9/11 babies. Anyway that joined the army after 9/11, especially if they were older guys, that you know, 9/11 was you know their catalyst. And he was a cop, and he was like, yeah, it's in your blood, dude. You got to go do it. So when I get off of active of duty. I knew I wanted to go to school and I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll, he said there was, you know, an opportunity if I could, I could probably work on my homework and as a dispatcher. So I joined, you know, I looked mainly primarily for dispatch jobs and, and I, I got one obviously. Um, and then, uh, started going to school. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't long after that, that they were like, Hey, you know, looks like you've like interested in being a police officer and rumor has it that you're kind of applying to some other police jobs. Um, and once in a while when there's a, you know, like a Denver, you know, would, uh, would have you know? I'm you know from Colorado, and so uh, when Denver would advertise or uh, job openings, there were jobs that you they sent you to the police academy. So I wasn't interested in sending myself to the academy and paying my own way for that because I was paying for college. And uh, so when those jobs would pop up, I would apply for them. And so this department was like, well, you know, hey, if you know you are applying to those jobs, you know, we have five openings that right now and we can't get them filled. You know, we just keep you know through attrition. Once we get them filled, we're losing five more guys. It seems like so, and it was a. It was a smaller metro agency, about seventy officers, okay. and so they that first agency I worked for. So they uh, did you they sent me coming the, in. Other than as a career trajectory,
1: did you have any strong preconceived notions about what it was like to be a cop or what law enforcement no. would be like?
0: Okay, you're no. Just like, in fact, growing up, yeah. my mom and it's funny. Uh, I remember, I remember. I'll tell you two stories. Actually, one story is uh, growing up. My I remember, I remember watching this police officer. We lived in Southern California at the time. I remember he's hauling. We're walking down the sidewalk, you know, it's a busy, it's a busy roadway, we're walking the sidewalk and this guy comes up to the intersection, uh, no other cars in the roadway and i I never for, forget, he turns on his lights, burns the intersection, turns off his lights, takes off again. And my mom was like, you know, her first thought, like most citizens probably do, is, oh, police are just corrupt, basically. And of course, like, you know, I can, I can tell you this as a police officer. If there's nowhere for me to be, I've got to be there for 10 or 12 hours. I'm not in a hurry to get to the other side of the city for no reason. (laughs) I'm going to be there anyway, right? So there's no reason for me to run red light. You know, I'm not going to lunch quickly, Uh, you know, so – but she, her family's all from New York and, you know, all that sixties and seventies, you know, that all that New York corruption were like hundreds of police officers were arrested during all that drug stuff back then in the early eighties. Um, so that was her kind of experience with that. But I had no, no- notions otherwise about law enforcement um, that I didn't really have any notion. I would say that also in the same jurisdiction that I lived in, you know, the thing you know we, we had we had a neighbor who was a police officer for it uh, for a city and then down the street and he was he was kind of a younger guy very intense you know and then down the street from us was a california highway patrolman and he'd been a cop like maybe 30 years at this point rode his motorcycle home super laid back he'd been done at all at this point so he completely opposite side of the spectrum looking back you know he was ready to you know he's getting close to retirement and not you know whereas the guy next door to us was very you know very into it you know um but one day me and my friend is playing in the backyard and our our house backed up to a major roadway and we hear this noise and we climb up on the wall that separates us from the street and there's a police officer making a he's a sheriff's deputy making a, a traffic stop and we're like oh wow look at that that's crazy you know it's cool and it, it's to our right and he, you know the car is to our right and uh, the, the stop car he stops in front of in front of him and so we're like oh we see the shotgun look, there's the shotgun in there it's so a deputy and this is you know late 80s you know this is like you know probably like 88 89 you know and uh, he says uh Hey, you know, give me a minute and I'll show you guys a shotgun. So he lets this guy go a couple minutes later and he pulls the shotgun out. He, you know, pumps it clear looking back. I, you know, he, you know, clears it and he's like, you know, side of the roadway showing us this shotgun. He doesn't let us hold it or anything. And we're like, which you would never do now, even as a cop, you know, you know, I would never think to pull my gun out, to the show, you know, it's a different world, you know, we're like, wow. And I mean, I think about, I've thought about that. I even tried to reach out to that agency to see if anybody had heard that story to like, you know, I want to know if this guy is still around, if he, you know, you know, uh, I want to talk to him, you know, but you know, and I thought that, I mean, it was, that didn't say that I wasn't that moment by any means. That I thought I wanted to be a cop by any means. It was just a really cool experience as a kid that, you know, nobody really gets to see. Do you, you think know? he just saw you two were watching and
1: curious. Yeah. So he's like, you know, what can I show you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we, and he heard us say, and he heard us talking. There's the shotgun. You used the shotgun in the car, you know? And, uh, you know, so he's like, yeah, I'll show you guys, you know, give me a minute, you know, let me wrap this up. And he, I mean, it was probably one of the most community policing things to do. This cool cop was like, yeah, these kids want to see the shotgun. Let me show them a right. shotgun, you know, uh, you know, and now everything community policing is like coffee with a cop. And like, let me, you know, go shopping with you. But this guy was like, hey, you want to see a shotgun? Let me show you the <laughs> shotgun. You know, uh, you know so he was, he was cool. Never got the guy's name. Um You know, had no idea. I mean, I remember telling other people, and you know what? Me and my friend would tell people this story, like adults, because there was no adults out there. Uh, you know, we told this story, and nobody believed us. (laughs) And (laughs) there's no way a cop pulled his gun out for you to look
1: at it. You kidding me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's that you know, that was by no means a catalyst to give me the law enforcement, it's just a good story, but uh, uh. It by no means was like, oh now I gotta be a cop, you know.
1: Was police was Police Academy and your first few years, was it exactly what you were expecting, or did you have any were you shocked by anything?
0: I don't really use the word shocked by anything. Um it was nothing like I expected. Um it's just, you know. Did
1: you think it was gonna be like boot camp like was your impression it's gonna be like college or like boot camp again?
0: You know neither I, I went to an I went to a college academy, so they it was somewhat paramilitary. They tried to make it kind of paramilitary, but I'd already been in the military, so none of it was impressive for <laughs> me uh, you know um it was super easy like when it came to that. I know guys that went to very paramilitary academies um when I lateraled to my second agency, our internal academy there was fourteen weeks long, and that was. More paramilitary than it should have been by a long shot, I mean a lot of very shiny boots and you know uniform inspections and stuff like that but uh with that you know we it was not the academy itself wasn't hard um, there was more to it than I thought there would be you know as far as because the thing with the academy if you go to a general academy yeah. They're going to teach you some basic stuff about report writing and some and shooting. And they're to, there's there's some state requirements on teaching how to shoot, drive, do defensive tactics, and law, and take your test. But then they're going to teach you some stuff on how to write a report, how to conduct an investigation. But and you know when you get to your department, which I already uh, you know I already had a department, but they're not the ones instructing me. Right. Um, when you get there, they're going to teach you how they operate because every community's police department is different. How my department works is not going to be how LAPD works. It's not going to be how a department that's really, really rich works or really, really poor works. You know, we were kind of in the middle, somewhat affluent. We had a, you know money and good equipment, but we weren't like overly rich. Okay. As a department. So in our community was upper middle class that we served. And when I got to my second apartment was lower middle class to poverty and they operated completely differently. Um, The types of calls were completely different. Domestics were just different. Um, What people stole were different. Everything was different. Um, and every department works it differently. And when people see TV and they go, the police this, the police that, they have, the first, they have a misunderstanding, that, first of all, that every department has to operate differently based on their size, their manpower, what their calls load looks like, and what their community's complaints are. Right. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I hear all the time is, oh, police officers can't shoot. Police officers can't shoot. Well, despite what media tells you, police officers don't really get in that many shootings. What they get into a lot of are car accidents. What they get a lot of are complaints about being rude. What they get a lot of are potentially ethical issues. And so departments spend a lot of time training on that. Law changes every year. So they get a lot of training on the law. And when there's one thing that the department feels like it can cut, they're going to go down to what the state requires for firearms training because the news makes it look like it's a, it's a every hour on the hour, you know, someone's getting shot by the police. Right. It's just not happening that often.
1: Can I ask, um, so I'm surprised, one reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm surprised by, I think it is very difficult to get an insider's view of law enforcement in this country, Mm -hmm. even though TV and movies and books are jammed with fictional accounts of stuff or the really sensational cases, some detective has a really sensational case and he co-writes a book with somebody and it's about that sensational case, but just the brass tacks down to earth work. I'm curious about some things. In your work, I think our outside impression is that cops, at least my impression growing up, cops are like firefighters. So the idea is that these are just people, these are people who just put themselves at risk all the time. And my impression from finally talking to some cops and reading some books is this idea that you need to be safe yourself. So you're this, this cliche about everybody needs to, you need to come home alive at the end of the shift. That's your number (laughs) one job. Uh, And so we're safety. And I from my understanding from a couple of books I read, there was a time when the job was more unsafe than it is now for cops, and they brought fatalities and injuries down by focusing on that. Your job is to stay healthy and alive during your shift and come home to your family. What was your impression about going to the police academy and your first job? What were your the values that you were supposed to be focusing on every day?
0: So every department, especially, and I'm going to kind of broad, broad brush this, okay. but i have for so i work for three departments total okay and I, i'll get to it really quickly I, I my last department because of what law enforcement is i was burned out and i ended up taking a job at a small airport as a police officer um i was injured in colorado and i had family here in southwest missouri i ended up working for a great organization at the airport uh great supervisor su- supervisor um I won't mention his name, but, uh, you know, and and I'm not telling him about this by any means, but, you know, he gave me a lot of leeway to kind of run things how I wanted to run them and gave me, you know, brought. he loved my expertise or what he called my expertise. And I, I was treated very well. Okay. And I was treated... Like an expert, you know, so uh, it was a different aspect completely. But to jump back to your question on, you know, the safety thing. Yeah, there was a time in this country that policing was a lot less safe. And and I'll give you an even example. This is a different cultural from different departments, right? So my first department, uh, our culture there was if there's a call waiting on the screen, there will the citizen will not wait. You will go to that call. And it doesn't matter how unsafe it is for you to be by yourself, you will go to that call. The citizen made a call, and that means putting yourself at risk. Um, so you, domestic violence incidents are some of the highest risk incidents for law enforcement officers in this country. A enforcement officers get killed on traffic stops and in domestic violence incidents the most. Um, domestic violence incidents are very high-strung uh, emotional incidents. And was it
1: the biggest problem um, going alone and having that be the policy? If we're busy and there's no backup, then you go, you respond.
0: You know, when, when you're young, I don't think you notice that much. Okay. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, screw it. You know, I mean, hey, you know, you're, that's part of the job. It's right. part of the, you know, you're, it's dangerous, you know. So, and you kind of, and in some cases I would say this, you don't realize how dangerous it was till later.
1: Um,
0: oh, so you're when you're, like, you're oh, kind yeah, of I, coming
1: I, down and running yeah.
0: all the things through your head. And you're like, oh. So, um, you know, and uh, in my career, you know, I've been to active shooter events. You know, you kind of don't you know, realize the, how high strung you were during that event until – Later, you know these domestic violence incidents. You don't realize how strong, how strong you were. Or these pursuits that you were in. You don't. You know, kind of at the time, you know you're not really paying attention to how dangerous it is. I think, um, and it's important to kind of think that way because it is a dangerous. It's an inherently dangerous job. Now, when I say that doesn't mean you can't be safe. Now, safety is. You know, a lot of departments will have. So I, my first department, like I said, was, hey, everybody, you go to this call. Yeah. Now we know that officers get killed in the line of duty all the time when they're by themselves. And there's a lengthy story that uh, I was almost killed uh, by two guys. Uh, I don't really want to get into detail on. Sure. But um, they I was by myself, and I should have waited. Um, there were two cartel guys trying to kill a third cartel guy. Um, the story behind it was that they came up with this cockamamie story about a, a bad... You know, bad cars bad private car sale you know and the community i worked in was like wow cartel numbers are down here this is really weird it's not you know that's not what we experienced um the uh um the second apartment i went to was does not matter what's happening you will wait for a backup car and you will go together so if people are dying you will wait and they, the the chief of of patrol the division chief over patrol his, stat, his stance was I will not lose an officer okay and i had a lot of respect for that and some people i think in this community in, the, in this society can't grasp that and i would say this to them nobody told you to get into the crappy situation that you're in now the police will come and help you but i will be safe along the way um we there's a saying in law enforcement that we would say is the only true victims are kids cuz they didn't choose to be there yeah Uh, Right. And I mean, I could say the same thing a lot of times about the very elderly, but a lot of times, and as much as, you know, these victims don't want to be victims and didn't maybe didn't expect to be victims, they made some decisions along the way to put themselves in those positions, Um, especially those domestic violence incidents where it's a cycle where it continues over and over and over again. And I can tell you, we would go to the same houses over and over and over again. And then you get complacent and that's the time that officers get killed. But you know but the, the cultural difference in the two departments was one department was very afraid of its its clientele its public to say oh my god you 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 your call for service time it took you so long on your average minutes to get to a call well, the second department was like yeah we don't care we're not going to lose an officer we're not going to an officer hurt and you know people have no idea on top of losing an officer what it does to a department it actually destroys a department uh depending on the you know if an officer dies based on some policies um there's a department in Colorado that an officer was killed on the line duty by another police officer and I'll let you look it up. But that department, and this was in 2012, that department is in turmoil to this day. Um, there are problems in that department and it was you know, based on policies on leadership and the citizenry pays for that because now police officers aren't going to be as functional as they were. Plus the co- the financial cost of replacing officers, the financial cost of paying lawsuits, the financial cost of paying insurance policies and so on and so forth. Can I ask about,
1: you mentioned, uh, so the, the first Metro, hey, a citizen calls, there's a call, you have to go. Every single call you get, well, obviously not every single, but there's a problem. And then if you start mm-hmm. seeing, you see, the, I get to walk around the world and get the full sampling of humanity police officers don't get the full sampling of humanity during their work day. They get the full sampling of people who are calling the cops, which means there's a problem yep. at every situation. How do you, there is. how do you process that thing you said is legitimate where you're like, you could see people making bad decisions and how that leads to what happened here. Right. But you as a cop do not control their thinking and you're not going to help them there. So like you're talking about coming back to places again and again, and like you can't fix their thinking. How you do you keep from getting cynical? getting
0: cynical? You don't. Okay. And i'll tell you now that you don't okay. any cop that's not cynical is either a liar or they haven't been a cop long enough <laughs> okay. uh um because one thing that the cynicism does is it, it, it first of all you're jaded but the second thing is it helps keep your brain at, you know functional because if you go into every situation like everybody's this just victim and and everybody you know you know is just this hundred percent one guy did this nobody else is at fault and nobody else you know you know, it's just black and white. And you go into every situation like that, you're going to burn yourself out. Your brain's going to break pretty quick. <laughs> um, when you start realizing, you know, the same repeat offenders, the same customers over and over and over again, quote customers in quotation marks, right. uh, you know, over and over and over again. And you can, I mean, you, there were times I'd come on scene and, you know, by people by first name, you know, like, what is it now, John? Like, what is the deal? <laughs> like you're taking up our time. We have a screen full of calls pending. We're trying to get to these other calls. What do you want now? Right. Um, we had, you know, and every you have to investigate these calls. You can't not investigate them because the one time you don't and something bad happens, it's it's going to be your it's going to be your butt on the line for that. And I'll give you an example: is yeah. you know, uh, we had at my first jurisdiction, we had, and this is a, g- a good good opportunity to work with your public too, and that is we had a a child in this our jurisdiction. She was she had a learning disability and she was about ten or eleven years old. And she lived with mom, and her dad lived actually surprisingly in my second jurisdiction, which was in another county. Weird. Okay. You know, but I, you know, it just happens to be coincidence on that. I had no no influence one way or the other. Well, this guy would call all the time to report child abuse on, on mom, try to get her in trouble. To the point that we would do welfare checks on the daily, and every single time we're doing these because a kid is involved, and there's an allegation of child abuse. We're taking a report on this, we're writing paperwork on this, and it's it's time consuming and frustrating when there's nothing there. And so we would go there, and it got to the point with this family that they knew me by first name. They uh, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even let me. They would. Let we walk through their house unescorted it got to the point that they they were so irritated with it they would open the door hey kevin how's it going you know where her room's at go ahead and go talk to her you know they had nothing to worry about they weren't concerned whatsoever they knew that i had to just put eyes on her and make sure she was okay so i could put on my report they're like hey see you next time he calls you know type thing well it ended up blowing up a little bit um and it, in fact what's happened when there was another officer who Was known, she was known to be kind of a a crapster, if you will. Uh, And I remember she actually took that welfare check one time. And my supervisor called me and said, "Hey, that officer's heading down to that house right now. She's gonna burn all your rapport that you've built. Go down there right now, and go get it, you know, before she before she pisses them off." And now we had to start from scratch to deal with them. So I did, you know. And of course, you know, I was I was able to make sure everything was good. But the dad got so frustrated that we would do nothing because nothing was happening that he would call and make. Child abuse complaints with his local in his local county, which all they would do is call our county for child human, human services and send it over. And we would do the same thing, do another welfare check. Well, one time, this little 10 year old or 11 year old, she, long story short, is that she ends up assaulting mom and mom. Uh, all mom did was grab her and drag her uh, by her feet back into her bedroom, and the girl got a rug burn. And mom had just had surgery and was punched in the stomach by this little girl. And uh, so, of course, the girl got a rug burn. So, of course, now the on the surface of the law, which is you can't mark a child, okay. the surface looks like she abuses this child. Well, I would argue with parents and, and anybody who thinks they're a legal scholar is this. You can't discipline a child and mark them. But you also don't have to be assaulted. Once they assault you, once a child, you know, over this, over a certain age depends on your state on what they consider, you know, a child and not a child. But once they reach a certain age, and they assault you, you don't have to be assaulted. And if in, in your defense you end up getting, you know, putting a mark on that child, it's no longer a child situation. It's now you were defending yourself. So this, so ultimately, I get in this, you know. I, you know, did all everything that I was supposed to do. I did my investigation, and I even called our detectives and called my supervisors. Hey, just want to put a second set of eyes on this to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Right. Everybody had the same agreement that as me is that hey, you know, the mom did nothing wrong. This guy was getting nowhere, so he's, you know, he calls his local human services, and she calls, you know, the human services lady from this other county calls me and says, hey, you know, I'm, you got to go down there and make an arrest on this mom. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. She's like, oh, I'm telling you, you have to make an arrest. I said, well, I'm telling you, there's only one of us that can make an arrest, and it ain't you. <laughs> You know, so that's how you build cynicism because these government agencies don't work together. First of all, in that same jurisdiction that I worked in, what they would do for child abuse investigations is somebody would make a complaint to human services because they didn't want to call the police directly. And they, they would that organization would fax over a sheet to your department and say, hey, this is the who lives there, this is what the allegation is. But what they would notoriously do is fax over the sheet at 4.59 p.m., so, by the time you, as the officer on the street, is getting this sheet, you have more questions like, hey, what's, what's, I need more to this story. Right. So, before I go over to this house and start investigating this, I'd like to, you know, find out what else they know. Cause it you know, it'd be a short synopsis on these sheets. And then, of course, they're gone for it's the day. After five, yeah. when you call back, you can't get a hold of anybody. And they would do that on purpose every day. And you're like, hey, I want to do a proper investigation. And I, but I can't because you don't want to wait past hours or you know how ridiculous the allegation is in the first place and you don't really care that i have to go do this investigation but you're happy to just you know fire and forget on this facts and now i'm now i got to go do this based on little information. so i kind of have two deviating questions about
1: that the first sure. one is how do you so again thinking about frustration and cynicism as a police officer you are kind of at the you are at the tip of the spear of the entire governmental structure you are the man or woman with the gun who has to enforce the law um mm-hmm. So what do you do when you get frustrated with the fact that citizens there's bad cops who abuse the law and abuse their authority mm-hmm. but then you your department's being weaponized by one citizen who's calling around and confusing the spider web of government agencies is there it is very difficult to untangle yourself from people who are really abusing the system in this way
0: well yeah you, but at the end of the day you have to investigate it okay. you can't not you can't not um What if the one time that they call in is the real deal? Uh, and you don't investigate that properly. Departments have found themselves hanging out to dry on this. So
1: then you, at the um, very least, you build a person. You take the time to build a personal relationship with the person whose house you're visiting all you, the time. So
0: yeah, you, well, you can. It doesn't always. You don't always build. Them. Right. They, they get used to seeing you, and you get. You, you might get used to saying, "Hey, I'm tired of coming to your house." And they. And it might get to the point that hey, if I, you know, you start figuring out, like, hey, you start getting really creative, looking through your municipal code, looking through your state law, and you start charging them with crimes, and you're like, hey, if you guys want to abuse the police we'll start figuring out how to put you in jail and uh you know people hate that man- mindset but hey they're taking up everybody's time right and you know over nonsense all the time and th- this is a common occurrence um as far as you know you don't just dis- you know th- you have to disassociate yourself enough to say hey i got i just got to go to the call and handle this now as far as you know, you, you mentioned that you know there are bad cops out there there sure are but the problem is this is if you start pulling the statistics of what a bad police officer is yeah now, now, to me, a bad police officer is a bunch of things and includes safety violations, includes um, being lazy and includes all these other things. It doesn't necessarily mean they're in violation of law. It doesn't mean, necessarily mean they're in violation of their departmental policy.
1: Right. When we say, when the with, public says bad cop, they mean someone doing something to the public during the course of their job. And you're saying, right. no, no, there's many the, flavors of bad cops. Some don't involve um, that.
0: Uh, now, I'm, now I, when I say that, the caveat is that. What I'm really saying is what the public – depicts as a bad police officer, they have zero idea what a bad police officer is. And what they see on TV is sensationalized and and put there for their pleasure, their viewing pleasure to be to give it an emotional response. And many times I will you know, or, you know will see somebody do an officer do something, and it may not be what I would have done, or maybe maybe should have chosen something different. But it didn't mean that it was a violation of law or policy for that department. And people will be upset and up in arms about it. And you're like, the guy did nothing wrong. I'm sorry to tell you, it's not a violation of law. You may not like it. But it is what it is. And I will tell you, this is a police officer. The biggest pet peeve that cops have, besides when you walk into a restaurant, every single person saying, I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you walk in a restaurant, you go on your coffee break, or you're looking for somebody and you you know, citizens want to, you know, they think because you're out and about that you're not doing something. Right. And that's not the case. You're a lot of times you, you walk into a place, you're looking for somebody, you're trying to figure something out and, you know, or you have to check mock check box that you walk, you know, made a, made a stop in there. It might be a bunch of things you know um but the, the other you know uh pet peeve yeah is you know, people that people love to tell a story about a time that they were right and the police were wrong. That's what police, <laughs> I'm serious. So, people will tell tell me all the time, Oh, this one cop did this, and I, I showed him how, what was up, and I was right, and he was wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean the case. He probably just was done arguing for the day and was like, I'm not going to give you a ticket, just go away. And then that story from that is somehow evolved into, Oh, I was right, and he was wrong. If he was wrong, he violated your rights by stopping you, right? Right, because you have to have reasonable suspicion the news likes to use the word probable cause but you have a reasonable suspicion to contact a vehicle um that's in motion so um it's a lower standard and people again don't understand that um you hear all this all the time well they didn't have probable cause and I, people would say you don't have probable cause and i would say you're absolutely right i don't i have reasonable suspicion which is lower standard and you're not free to go you know, and they would it would just piss people off. And I'm like, you feel free to sue me, but I there's case law that supports what I'm doing. And if you know, and as a police officer, if you know the law, if you know the case law, you'll be fine. Um, there's just so much of it, and it changes all the time. Um, in fact, I mean, I, th- I mean, I can think of major cases that changed the way police officers operate from the day I started to the day I left. And looking at the differences in these cases, and you're like, wow, I can't believe. Uh, you know, some of these newer cops in life don't know that you could used to be able to do that or, or that's how we used to operate until the, until a case law came out and said, no, you can't do that anymore. Um, and so things change, um, there's a, but things change all the time. Yeah. So we used to have this fiction. So there was a
1: fictionalized world of sensational cases. And now it's very interesting because I see this stuff on TikTok a lot. I use TikTok way too much. I find it, I find Same. it super aggravating. And highly fascinating because I feel like it's a window into how people are thinking. And Mm -hmm. if you watch a video about a traffic stop a little too long, it'll deliver another traffic stop. And before you know it, you spend your entire feed looking at First Amendment defenders with cameras, annoying dirty officers and (laughs) cops, and people – and the Lulus who think that they're there's something, the Constitution isn't binding, and they're they're not in active commerce. Oh, so I don't need oh, a license oh, or those are those are sovereign
0: citizens. Sovereign they citizens. Follow, Thank you. Yes. Yes. They they like to follow the Articles of Confederation. Yes. Article um of Confederation. we used to have some in the jurisdiction I worked in, and here's the deal: there are some here now, and I watch these videos, and this is an example of cops not knowing the law. Yeah. Or afraid to or afraid to enforce it, one of the two. And that's, I see these guys in violation of the law or their municipal code or county code. But because the officers won't enforce it, all that does is let them go further and further and they think because it's not being enforced that they can do what they're doing. And instead of turning around and going like, "Nope, you're in violation of the law, you're under arrest" and and putting a stop to it. We were having this problem too in my juris- the jurisdiction and we started arresting these guys when they violated the law and we had probable cause. Yeah. We didn't, you know, uh, we didn't go seeking it necessarily, but when they we had probable cause developed and we the to make an arrest and there was a violation of law, we would arrest them and we were known that we would do so. Um, departments started taking this other stance on this because they're just afraid of lawsuits. Because these guys will lawsuit, they'll, 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 no matter how frivolous it is, they will drop a lawsuit, and that's their whole goal is to get a lawsuit. And they're taking up taxpayer dollars, right. which ups, should upset every taxpayer. Like these guys can't go do their jobs because they're dealing with this idiot.
1: Okay, I have a question because now I want to, I want to pull those two, I threw those two examples together. I want to pull them apart. Articles of Confederation stuff, I'm pretty sure in my civics class in high school, I was pretty clear the Articles of Confederation are no longer binding, but apparently there's lots of people that think they are. Fine. Okay. That's one thing. The other thing, the first, um, did you run into any of these First Amendment uh, camera walkers who are basically walking Mm -hmm. around and they make people nervous and then the cops have to use, some of them don't do it. De escalation to try to be like, well, this person's legally allowed to do this very annoying behavior of filming
0: everyone around so, them. Did you ever run into so that? Yeah. So yeah, so there okay. is you know, you're, so we have these these guys in our jurisdiction, and I would tell you we would do impairment driving checkpoints, DUI checkpoints. Okay. Despite what you feel about them, or if people don't like them, too bad. You know, I I was I did a lot of DUI enforcement in my career. These DUI drivers are killing people on the roadway, and you have the right to drive safely on the roadway. I have the right to have, know that my family is safe on the roadway, and these guys are killing people on the roadway, and it's rising. So we would do checkpoints, and generally the checkpoint would be like right and we would have like this we would do a county-wide you have county officers you'd have different other jurisdictions do mutual aid do these big checkpoints and we would um essentially have you know this basically this like area where we'd ha- we'd make their arrest we'd fingerprint them take pictures of them fill out their ticket right there on the spot and they would get picked up yeah so they're kind of out in the open well these oddities first amendment guys when there was you know, and uh, offline i'll give you one of the guys names sure. youtube videos. He's, he's in prison now because okay. um, if you threaten the wrong person like a judge then that guy gets upset right um so that now this guy's in prison um one of the, but he'd have a whole team of guys so there were like eight of these guys that worked for him yeah and they, their whole point is to get lawsuits and so they're filming the our checkpoint they're going in out of our checkpoint and they're starting to walk up and i stopped a couple of these guys from walking up to um these guys being arrested and getting fingerprinted. And I saw them and I said, hey, you're allowed to film. I'm not saying you're not, but the deal is this. These people that have been arrested, they don't have to be bothered by you. They had a bad day already. And just because they had a bad day doesn't mean we owe, don't owe them the same protections that we owe everybody else, which is they have a right to keep as much of this information private as possible, including their personal identifying information, which is their social security number, name, address, et cetera. And they don't need a camera in their face on, the, on, a, on a very bad day of their life because you think you have a right to film them. Right. And I think you know, people forget that, you know, you know, people that get arrested, you know, nine times out of 10, I think, I don't want to use that word number because I don't know, but uh, a lot of times are people that will never be arrested again and they made a mistake. Some people are very much repeat offenders. Uh, And, you know, they're having a bad day. They got arrested. That sucks. You know, um, I've had, I can't tell you how many times I took somebody to jail and somebody said, Hey, thanks for being so cool. There's no reason for me to be a dick to you, man. You were nice to me. I'm nice to you. Now it, you don't want to be nice to me, then I probably won't be nice back. But, you know, I would tell my trainees, we would wipe down our car. Uh, you know, we clean our car at the beginning of shift. It's, you want to be in a clean car, it's your office all day. But I would clean the back seat too. If you got arrested for like a domestic or mail fraud or something stupid that you made a mistake on, do you want to sit in somebody else's throw up or urine or something like this? No, that's not right. You know, so, you know, we want to keep that car clean. You know, the experience sucks, but you nevertheless, make sure they have an experience that says, that, Hey, these guys were professional at the end of the day, right? You know? Um, so, um,
1: so you would try to gently work around. So you'd have a nice conversation with these auditors about, look, I, Civil, I'm asking you for some civility here
0: and understand <laughs> no. these other human beings. <laughs> no, I would have a stern conversation <laughs> a stern with <laughs> auditors uh, because there's no nice conversation with them because at okay. the end of the day, you're the police. Uh, you, you know They don't like you. There's, noth- there's nothing you're going to say to convince them. If you start reading the comments on those videos that you watch, there's nothing that you're going to – once you start reading those comments, you're going to say, there's so many times in life that I've been like, oh, I should comment on this. You know what? You're not going to convince them. <laughs> That's you know true. what? They've already made up their mind about how the police are terrible, without them having any idea. And you know what I found out was a lot of them wanted to be cops way back in the day, and they just couldn't cut it. Um, really, that's interesting.
1: Like if you I've, did, I found a lot of them that into their stories. okay.
0: I, the one, some of them that I've arrested have told me, "Well, you know, when I was young, I really wanted to be a cop." You know, and you start hearing this, I'm like, you know, because you have to have these awkward conversations on the way to jail. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, does no matter or while you're waiting for something to some another officer to do what he needs to do, and you got this rusty with you you gotta you have to have the awkward conversation because you're not trying to talk to them but they want to talk to you and they're you know you start diving into personal things in life and you're like okay this is a really weird conversation i wish this would and everybody's uncomfortable i wish this would be over i get you to jail and be done with the night on this but you know when it comes to the articles of confederation uh these guys crack me up with this yes you're absolutely right it was you know the 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 constitution absolves the the you know, the,
1: there was a new one. The states sent their representatives to vote on, and that's the Constitution
0: of the United States. <laughs> it's a lengthy. It's a lengthy process uh, of how that occurred. And I'm a history buff in general. And you know, I'm sure some history major is going to listen to this and go, "Oh, that's not right." But um, you know, there there was a lot more to it than just that. But people don't realize we're the United States because each state during the Articles of Confederation was its essentially its own country. Um, it was a state, like you know, like we refer to any other state, a nation state, um, and that's why we're now the United States. We weren't united at the time. There were all these tax problems and all these, you know, uh, you know, um, pro- you know, every every. Uh, and Washington had big ability-
1: beef that, like, we're not going to be able to put an army together, so we need to. Couldn't put
0: an army together. Yeah. Um, sometimes they had different currencies. they were different tax, like, so really different taxes and different laws, and so it was definitely not working out. Um, you know, I'm not saying when I, you know, talk with the, the sovereign citizens, there's things that upset me about my government too. Right. Um, and, and I don't really always agree with how things are. I mean, I could definitely come up with a list right now of, of tax taxes that I'm like, uh, this is kind of unconstitutional, uh, you know. And you start, you know, I'm a, like I said, a history buff, you start going like, what are these, you know, what is our government doing? That's upsetting, you no? Know? But there's a right way and a wrong way to handle it. And I don't think the sovereign citizen method is the right way to handle it. Yeah. And these guys can be very dangerous. They have their own courts. I know an officer that will that was sub, subpoenaed and uh, quote unquote uh, into the, one of their courts. And of course, you know, he's like, I'm gonna go and let's see. Super- like you're not going to that court, dude. Like you're not going to have. He's like, no, I want to like, go. A, I want to He's like, I got to yeah. see what this
1: thing is. You
0: know, they have these courts. They'll try to they'll try to put liens on your houses. Um, you'll see their like fake license plates, especially in like mountain communities or or like really rural communities. You'll see their fake license plates going around. You know, um, I, I don't know how some of those jurisdictions handle it. Being like if they're one man or two man departments, I never worked for something that small, um, so I can only. But they they can be very dangerous people because they're generally very anti government. Um, and again I may very much agree with some of the things that they say or believe in I'm sure it's not everything, or I'd be a sovereign citizen. But I mean,
1: <laughs> overall, know. do I? Yeah, I think it's easy to say. Well, there's federal government overreach, and the states sure. have had their power yeah. taken for a very, very, very long
0: time now. So you can right. agree and with of them course, on you that. Know, there, there are reasons why there's supposed to be a balance of power between the state and the federal government. We, we had a civil war over some of those issues. Um, you know, despite what the you know the grade school kids learned, it was just about slavery. It wasn't. There was a lot of state right issues and. Uh, what they found out again too is like, hey, we gotta, we have to have a, you know, federal sovereignty, and the states can have a lower level of sovereignty, and they got to be united under, you know, one federal government, and you know, and I would believe that to this day, you know, and I mean, I have friends that are getting to the point where they're like, oh, you know, the South had a lot of good points, you know, and I was like, or well, Lincoln shouldn't have been able to do what he did, and I, you know, and I always kind of look back, and I always kind of say, you know, I'm kind of we're going off the sidetrack here, yeah. but I always thought, you know, hey. If I was Lincoln's shoes, I, pre, I would try to preserve the the Union as well, and whatever it took, you know. And I and that's as I mean, even if I agree with some of the stances that the Confederates had, which is not slavery for sure, but uh, you know some of the the states' right stances otherwise, I, I, I would still hope to preserve the Union. And. There are practical elements, again, that the Articles of Confederation didn't
1: deal with. There are practical elements for the weakness of individual states fighting amongst themselves because any one of those states, again, you're also at risk in the international world of other countries, larger countries. These individual states, can you put an army together? Can you defend yourself against invaders? Maybe you can't. Okay. My last question, I'm curious about because you – I mean you really dig your job now, which is working in the the school system outside of Mm -hmm. specific law enforcement what is it about what burned you out that moved you to the airport and then into um, work and school resource stuff?
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a multifaceted approach. Um, what burned me out was a lot of things. Um, the constant calls for service, the constant repeat calls for service, the the continue, uh, the the just the, the toxic leadership, the, to, the the command staffs in law enforcement across this country are some of the most toxic people um, in this nation. And when people talk about police reform, I'm like, um, hey, I believe in police reform too. But what you mean by police reform and I mean by police reform are going to be two entirely different things. <laughs> it, you know, I, I mean, I would almost go as far as to maybe even somewhat agree to like the sovereign citizen level and say, yeah, I think there should be less laws but I think that we should actually enforce some of the important laws. I think we should enforce and people, you know, I don't think people should get out of prison if they murder somebody. Yeah. Right. I don't think that should be a thing. If you, if you abuse a child, I don't think you should get out of prison. I don't think there's reform for you. I think we should enforce those laws to strong, to stronger. Right. But you know, you get these people that, you know, uh, I mean, I wore too many hats. I, what a few things that burned me out is I wore too many hats. I was a crisis and hostage negotiator. I was a field training officer, which was also like a, kind of uh, a pseudo supervisor. I was a firearms instructor. I was on the honor guard. My first department, I built the honor guard from the ground up.
1: Did you ever want to be behind a desk? Cause you could just move up the chain and then you could be part of that leadership. structure.
0: You, yeah. So there's a, there's another, there's your other problem for burnout right there. So yeah, you can just move up the chain. Here's one of the things that happens a lot in law enforcement yeah. is any cop that listens to this is going to be nodding their head. Yes. When I say this, you get these guys that are burned out and they want to move up and they want to either promote or, you know, I had dreams of being a detective and being at some other special use units. And I wanted to promote one day yeah. to some higher, much higher ranks, but I wanted to hit these other spots. I wanted to, you know, I had dreams of doing these other things, yeah. but you start getting burned out and then you get a bit reputation built around you that, you know, that you're, you're mean or you're an a-hole and that's not the case at all. But it, but the department won't recognize your burn, your, you know, being burned out. Most departments, well, there's some good ones out there that will for sure. And I've heard about them. Um, I've talked to people with them, but, um, you have this issue, you know, with these departments, and then these guys can't get promoted, so they're getting more angry and more mad. Um, with that, you have these very toxic commands that won't give them a chance. And then on time, but you'll, these guys that are very well experienced, I always thought, man, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try for some of these specialized units till I was, you know, ten years on the job, yeah. right? And then when I patent when I was twelve years on the job, thirteen years on the job, fourteen years on the job, I would start seeing get people with like three years on getting these specialized assignments. I'm like, you don't even know anything yet, man. You don't even know what life is about. And then you'd have sergeants that would get promoted out of out of specialized units. So they would they would be in a specialized unit for anywhere from five to ten years and then promote to the street. And they have they have zero clue what the culture is in that department, what's happening on the street. And and then they're you know trying to explain rules to you, and you're like, well, hold on a second, you don't even know the rules, and let me explain them to you. Um, and that's what bitter is what makes you bitter because you got these guys that are, you know, cops much less have less much less time on the street than you have. Um, and they're explaining things to you and you're like, you don't even, you're not even quoting policy correctly. And, you know, you shouldn't be in the position you're in. Did you, did
1: you see anybody who'd been around for the years with you who somehow maintained whatever the level of, like, they'd stay above that dark cloud of like, this sucks. Like, I don't know, an eternal optimist or somebody who is just... Yeah, there
0: there are those guys out there that you're just like, how are you just happy all the time, dude? (laughs) Like, how is this a fake... There's a few out there. I'm not saying there's not, but it's not... I don't think it's common. The guys that are like that are usually guys that got... You know they were like uh, three years on the job and got their first special assignment, then three years later got into another special assignment, three years later came back to patrol, then three years later got a, to a special, special assignment.
1: just kind of going everywhere. They, they have want a blessed life, They're
0: like, oh, there. life's good, man. You're like, screw you, man, like you're, you know, go to the domestic, next domestic, you know, uh, you know, so with that with what happened in 2020 you know PDs across this country paid for things they did not do Um, 900,000 police officers law enforcement officers went to work that day and did, did their job correctly And this is what I say about policy violations the statistic on the number of policy of of, of bad cops by policy or by lo- breaking the law is so minuscule; it's less than one half of one percent. And you cannot say the same thing about the rest of any other job in society. And I'm not saying those cops shouldn't be dealt with, and I'm, they should they should absolutely be dealt with if you've committed a crime on duty. I'm hope I mean I will tell you now that I arrested and he was I, <laughs> I arrested a retired officer from my department yeah. um, for driving under the influence. Um, because he endangered lives on the roadway, and did I make a phone call to a supervisor? And he called a commander, and he called a chief. Yeah, absolutely, I did. Right, you know, we're gonna make sure that everybody knows what's happening. Right. We're not gonna get blindsided by this, and we're maybe we might give him a little special treatment, like maybe we'll you know after we book him through, we might take him home type thing. Right. But he's getting arrested. He has a criminal history. He's gonna go to court. Um, we're getting him off the roadway. Um, we're impounding this car, whatever it might be. Right. Uh. Did I arrest a firefighter for my jurisdiction? I sure did, uh, because he tried to. You know, he was in a motor vehicle accident while under the influence. Yeah. Um, you know, so those those times that occurs, uh, you build a reputation for yourself too. Either people think, hey, you're good good job at enforcing law, but within your department, you also build a reputation of like, oh, don't trust that guy; he'll arrest a cop. You know. Um, and
1: so you get the judgmentalism from the people sure. every day, but you're also getting sure. the judgmental from the, your colleagues in there are developing opinions Absolutely, based on yeah. rumors or about hearing something happen. Oh, yeah. to somebody.
0: And they don't, and they, don't, they weren't there. They don't know what happened type right. thing. And you know, you, and then you have like the, the big mouths, of departments I remember I went to this, uh, this officer involved shooting once and the deputy had been shot twice in the process and ended up shooting the guy, uh, the bad guy twice. I was the first officer there. And, um, and uh, to the, uh, the break down what occurred, I remember our defensive tactics staff was tra- teaching us and telling us about this case. This is what happened. This is what the officer did. And I'm like, that's not what happened at all. I was there. And they're like, no, no. Uh, they told us, like, I was there. I saw the car. I saw the suspect. I saw the officer. I was there. I saw the blood on the ground. I lifted the guy into the ambulance and I was packing his wounds with gauze. I was there the, you know, you just heard about it, you know? Uh, so you, you know, have the, that's the other thing with law enforcement. You have, you have a lot of big mouths that they sell, they're good at selling themselves. Yeah. And that's the problem. I've never been good at selling myself. <laughs> uh, I've, you know, because I, you know, I've always been a guy that's like, maybe I need one more certification. Maybe I need to go to another class. Maybe I need another year of experience. And I go, and I do those things. <coughs> but I think that I need those things and I, cause I think everybody else is doing those things too. But they're not, they're just, they just sell themselves better. Yeah. So that, that gets you frustrated. So
1: you get this job, you're in this bad situation. You go to the airport, you like your boss and your boss is like, Hey, you're great. So it's like night and day. You're developing a bad reputation somewhere. You get this new yeah. job. Oh, so much better.
0: It, it's night and day. And so I, you know, I was, I was, like I said, I was burned out there, um, I, you know, got to the point where I was, I was making formal complaints on command staff officers. It got to the point that you to a certain point in life and you're almost 40 years old and going, Hey, I'm tired of being screamed at when I did nothing wrong. Yeah. Like I was in the army. I was a cadet before I was in the army. I, then I spent all these years in law enforcement being yelled at. You get to a certain age, you're like, okay, I'm done being yelled at. Like I did something wrong when I did nothing wrong. Um, you can have an adult conversation with me. And if, when you're willing to do that, we can have a chat. And if I don't agree with you, then we'll go our separate ways and agree to disagree. Um, if I violated policy, then write me up. But I have done nothing wrong. I'm not going to sit here and be screamed at because you just didn't like the way it was presented, or you you you're, you, you know, had a misconception of what really occurred. Right. You know. So I get to the airport, and um, otherwise, you know, it was a different different style of policing completely. Um, just a different world completely. It's a small airport. So it's not even like, you know, I knew guys uh, from like DFW airport and they're that police department's huge. Yeah. And they operate like a police department. They have, you know, they have specialized units they have all this stuff. I didn't work for a department that size with the airport, but my boss was, you know, uh, very supportive in getting me in the trainings that I wanted to go to. Um, if you got a complaint now, you know, you know, in, in law enforcement, no matter how wrong you are, you get a complaint, no matter right, you are, and you get a complaint, you're going to be wrong by your command staff. And, the, and I'll give you a quick story on that is that's so dark. This lady, man. yeah, this lady, uh, the, <laughs> complained on uh, me and two other officers one time saying that we were rude her and we weren't on a call for service. We had body worn cameras, but they weren't on cause they weren't required to be okay. And cause we weren't on a call. Well, because I could see this lady's attitude about where it was going, I decided, and I had to sneak, it's not easy to turn them on without everybody knowing that you turned them on, your body-worn camera. So I kind of snuck my hand up there to, you know, and, you know, just to kind of turn my body to the side a little bit, to turn my body-worn camera on, and, uh, and I recorded our conversation. Well, she makes a complaint to a supervisor that she knows, who then complains to my supervisor. And we're just getting the riot act just me and these other two officers about how rude we are and how terrible we are we're always like this to people all the time and so i would kind of end up in like in a screaming match with this supervisor and i said finally said well now that we've had that would you like to see the body worn camera footage and he said oh i didn't realize there was body worn camera footage because you guys weren't on a call i said oh yeah i've got that and i showed it to him and that supervisor was like yep I need to call this other supervisor and tell him how right you guys are and how wrong she is. And I said, how many times do you guys believe a citizen without believing an officer? Be, you know, and the problem with body worn cameras now is you get all these organizations that hate body worn cameras because they're recording people committing crimes, they're recording confessions, they're not getting the you know these allegedly you know violations they were supposedly having officers do all those years right and now it's like oh wait a second you know these aren't working for the benefit that we were hoping to work for and if that's actually making officers more in the right it's actually making you know our suspect more wrong and uh you know, people are upset about it. You're getting accused now of altering the camera footage. You're like, okay, you got to come up with something. You know, it's like you're never happy. You know, you must have altered this camera footage. Oh yes, I hacked the system, and uh, a that's a third that's that's a third party system that oversees this. And they're like, yeah, you can hack it, and we'll let you change
1: it. With distance in the rearview mirror, can are you able? Whatever kind of do you feel less? Um, angry or frustrated or resentful about how it was in the last job you didn't like, D- is it, is it fading and you have a different view of it or it's just, it's f- in other words, are you, is something changing? Do you think the job of a cop if- creates the situation where you see too much bad stuff and you cannot help, but have that poison your mindset?
0: No, I think okay. I'll say a couple things about that. I want to first say that if anybody knows who I am and I don't want to put the department's names out there, sure. but both departments, I worked for professional departments and I will always say that I will have been proud to have worked for both of those departments to the point that I have, you know, things on my wall that shows my pride in those departments and I will never look past that experience and say, that I wish I did what didn't experience those things with those departments. I am there were they trained me. I got to experience things. I made comrades there that I will have for the rest of my life. Um, I'm upset about some things that that didn't work out how I want them to work out. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's upsetting to me. Um, but I will always be proud of those departments and what I experienced there. Um, just like the department just like the public paints a broad brush on police officers i don't want to paint a broad brush on those departments because there are good people there there are good supervisors there there are good commanders in those places but the bad ones make it difficult to live um with that departments across this country not just those departments don't do a very good job of doing mental health checks they're trying they're trying to figure it out some of them are really trying yeah but a lot of them are not and they can't figure it out. And one of the issues is the same comment that I hear, out two comments that I hear all the time about me and about my friends yeah. that have left law enforcement. The first comment I hear all the time, and part of it was I was living in a metro area and I hated living in the metro area. And where I live now is a lot more rural of a community. So it, I like it a lot better. But what I hear all the time is from people is like, I'm a different person. That they don't—they don't even recognize me as a, as a personality because I'm I'm not the same person. And I would have argued that up until maybe even six or eight months ago. <laughs> um, like, oh, I'm the same person I've always been. Yeah. Um. You know, I have the tendency to be stern, and I have the tendency to be harsh and coarse, and so people associate that with being an asshole. Yeah. And it's not the same. Um. With that, um the thing that I hear from my friends a lot that have loved law enforcement after about six to 12 months of leaving the thing that they will have heard over and over and over again from people that didn't even know each other yeah. is I did not know how bad my mental health was until I left. And if these departments don't figure this out, when the, the, the department the, the people are hiring now that are, not the people they should be hiring because they can't get the cream of the crop anymore. Right. They're going to be running into some serious issues down the road. Um, and I, I really hope that, you know, the generation before me wouldn't have said that about my generation, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it was upsetting to me to leave Yeah, because I felt like I was handing the reins over to people that I shouldn't hand it over to. And I felt like I was leaving when I shouldn't have left. Did
1: you clean I, break or did you like try to stay in touch with people? And do you just want to know what was going on with the
0: department? Or you're like, I think I'm taking a break now. See you guys later. I clean broke as far as not really caring what was happening in the department. Um, i still stay in touch with several people. And most of those people have left law enforcement because I don't know anybody. So I don't really talk. So the only person that's there left is my brother-in-law. We were best friends. Okay. Um, we met, uh, at that department, we uh, became best friends. He went through unfortunately some uh, horrible uh, personal issues with his first wife, yeah. and we became just became ex- excellent friends. I started inviting him over to family events, and then he married my wife's sister. Uh, and this, but we were best friends on the street, and we experienced a lot of horrible things together. So we, you know, besides bonding as friends, we definitely went through the trauma bonding. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, you know, there's. We laugh about a story about me. Uh, you know, I'm literally, this guy was shot in the head, and I'm holding his head together while my, my brother-in-law has got his gun out and facing the direction where the bad guys are. And, you know, we look back now and laugh at the situation. At some of the things that we said to each other on this call at the time it was very serious. At the time, it was very scary. Right. Um, you know, you don't, weren't thinking about that, and then you look back and have like, Can you? I can't even believe we did what we we're, were thinking. You know, why, why, why did we not wait for uh, some other situations to unfold before we handled this? Right? Because somebody said, My friend had been shot in the head, and we ran to that is what we did, right? Um, I, you know, that's what we did, and um, you know, you didn't think about, Oh, my, my safety is in jeopardy right now. We're thinking, Oh my gosh, we need to help this guy. And the guy was a gang member, he was a bad person. You know, he, he was, he, you know, got into it with another gang member, got shot in the head. He survived. He's alive. As far as I know, alive to this day. I don't know. I don't, I didn't keep in touch with the guy or anything, right. but, you know, but you're you not sitting there judging that person uh, when you're doing it. You're, you're hoping to make sure that he survives and hopefully that, you know, all your training comes through, that you're able to pull it together. Other people are relying on you to pull it together. Um, and that's also part of the mental health struggle is because everybody's relying on you to pull it together. Cause nobody else can. Yeah.
1: Uh, and you have to, okay. The, you have let me go way over, but I still have a one last question. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, you're in Metro. You're not a fan of the, not a big fan of living in the city, all kinds of st- stress in the department, even though there are also wonderful things about the job and the department, now you're in school, and I would say right now, school active shooter stuff in schools, highly charged. And you mentioned before, like, sure. look, all these people, you're, all these people making mistakes and doing things and like, oh, the only real innocents are the kids. And so now you took a job where your job is to protect the kids from the crime. That's the really, I don't know, that seems, maybe it's not as scary as life on the street, but it seems scary. So how do you? When you went into this and you're working on active
0: shooter stuff, which as far as I'm concerned, active shooters in schools, although active shooters in schools are, although popular are not as popular as people think it's more likely to occur at a workplace or somewhere else. That being said, the jurisdiction or the district that I work for has decided that, unlike the the, the data shows, that immediate armed intervention is what stops active shooters. What I mean by immediate armed intervention is somebody with a gun arrived. It doesn't mean it's a police officer, and it doesn't mean they exchanged gunfire. It means that somebody with a gun arrived and is ready to be confrontational with this person. We can see this in citizens in malls that have had guns and and drew down on people that were active shooters. We can see this um, all the time. The idea is that in the state that you know, in the state of Missouri, that teachers can be armed if they go through certain training. It's a, <laughs> it's uh, quite extensive training, um, in addition to some other requirements. And then there's continued training, so it's not just handing a teacher a gun. Right. But what my jurisdiction did is, or my district did, is said we're going to create a unit specifically for this, and not have teachers do it. There's going to be a unit that specifically does this, in support of and in in cohesion with the school resource officer program. They want both law enforcement and the school protection officers in these schools, and the idea is that they understand that immediate armed intervention is what stops this. They're hoping for intervention prior to that. They're hoping that threat assessments and identifying issues and warning signs will occur, and that's part of our job is to make sure that happens. But in the event that, and then we also work on hardening security and target hardening. In the event that everything else fails, we're there to stop that threat.
1: I have a question um, that
0: one thing yeah, about the ahead. fact that there's somebody
1: there with a gun in addition to the active shooter is do you have any guess? So you're like, hey, this is the thing that stops it is it changing the plans and the mindset of the active shooter or is it just the logistics of being able to react faster? In other words, is it, does it have an effect because when the active shooter knows somebody there has a gun, it changes the plan.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm going to say both to that, right? Um, Because we've noticed in a trend in this country that uh, active shooting incidents occur at places where people are not armed. Right. So, in the most recent manifesto of the person, and I would not use their name because I don't think it's right to use their names and I wish people would stop using their names, but the person in Nashville um, that killed innocent children in her own manifesto stated that she was looking for a target that was weaker than other targets. Now, I didn't quote that correctly, so the next person that listens to this is upset with me on that. Well, I'll admit now that's not a direct quote. Right however that's what they're looking for the other thing is we also know that time matters right so the first officers that were on scene in, um, in my jurisdiction my last jurisdiction at a, at a shooting at a, at a retail store yeah. were there in like 90 to 120 seconds from the shots from the first 911 the shooter had already left in a car um, look at the Aurora theater shooting very famous shooting right the first 911 occurs at like 12:38 a.m. the suspects in custody at 12:45 a.m. officers were on scene immediately and took him into custody many people still died so we know that okay how do we mitigate that the mitigation is how do we take the time element out well if somebody's on scene they're going to mitigate that we're hoping that we can threat assessment first and target harden and and hopefully deny access and give them the impression that they are not that this is not a target, because unfortunately, how life works is I would not be able to intervene unless something's occurring, right? Right. So something bad would be happening, but we'd stop that as early in the process as possible. But hopefully, we, all the other stuff works perfectly, and I hope that it does. And we train for that, and we practice that, and we constantly coming up with new ideas on making sure that. We want to intervene as early as possible prior to it becoming violent and to get the proper amount of help. And we're following the best guidelines of psychologists and psychiatrists and, and data that's out there to say, hey, what's the best method for dealing with this person who's making these threats? Um, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> people, you know, everything is reactive, you know, uh, in life. So, you know, hopefully, every, hopefully everything works. I hope it does. I really want it to work. Um, I hope that the day comes that I never have to do that, uh, terrible thing, but if it does, it does. Um, so that's what they were there for. And, uh, kids are weird, uh, to be honest with you, uh, it's my first environment in a school. So it's like <laughs> jokes that are funny to me are not funny to, to teachers and school administrators. As you mentioned
1: so, like, years you know, ago when you're, well, recent, when you're given carte blanche to like, let me tell them my veteran stories. Yeah. Audience is white faced. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, and of course, this principal, he wants me to tell a story. He wants to tell a veteran story in front of all these students. And I'm like, what am I going to tell? First of all, there's nothing PG about any of these stories. A lot of F words in these stories. A lot of like nakedness in these stories. You know, people are running around naked with guns, you know, in the military. And, you know, uh, a lot of the things like that. But, you know, what am I going to tell? So, you know, gave a very general story. But, um, you know, the things that I find funny are just because they're crude and because, uh, you know, or they're just, you know... My drill sergeant said, the way you make a private remember everything is associate everything to sex. <laughs> They'll remember everything, right? Which you can't do, apparently, in school. Yeah, they
1: frown uh, Right, right, yeah. It's
0: frowned upon, right? But I always, like, I call junior high kids little Europeans because they don't know what personal space is. They're, like, up in my face all the time. Like, hey, bro, <laughs> like, back in office, like, you don't need to be that close <laughs> to me. And I'm just not used to that, right? Right. I spent... 18 years of my life being like, Hey, give me personal space. I'm giving you personal space. And now these kids, they just, they're like in your grill. you're like, dude, you did not have to be this close to me at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so getting used to like that, being around kids, getting used to is, you know, um, being vigilant about things And of course I am think I'm kind of A weird guy Because a custodian A custodian Propped open an outer door today In fact Of my building And was like Moving something in and out And I'm like That's a no-go man Right Somebody needs to be With my door at all times And I'm like And of course I'm the asshole about it Right Because you will not. And of course I get, you know, I quote movies and I quote shows, but I you know, get kind of asshole about it. And I'm like, I'm like, you're not going to, re- you know, you're not going to break down the protective posture of my school <laughs> because you want to make your life easier. That's not going to happen. Right. You know, so you get somebody from your staff to watch this door and close it, you know, <laughs> you know, and so, but my job is to keep those kids safe. And I take it seriously. Um, so that's part of the, you know, the prevention of everything happening is if we can keep whatever bad guy out, then we never have to worry about the inside portion.